Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're exploring the role and responsibility each of us have when it comes to making informed choices and decisions about how to best achieve our own optimal health today and into the future. We'll be covering why the individual needs to be part of the decision-making process, the value of a second opinion, what is informed consent, understanding the placebo and nocebo effect, and how social pressure can influence our decisions around health. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us on this critical topic that is intended to leave you feeling empowered to make informed evidence-based decisions about your health. I mean, that's what this podcast is about. I'm Megan Telpner, a nutritionist, two times best-selling author and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Joining me as always is Josh Catalis, who ensures I stay well-informed on health research, usually by sharing the latest studies with me at the crack of dawn before I'm fully awake. Very true, Megan. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. We live in an age where there are at least two, if not 10 sides to every story and every health recommendation. I often remind my culinary nutrition experts that if we look hard enough, there is a study that will support just about any recommendation. And for the average person, this can easily become overwhelming or an invitation to wholly hand over the decision-making process to someone else. It's true, Megan. What I found interesting, being someone who loves to read research, is that the headlines and often the editorials that accompany health-related newsworthy items is often cherry-picked, not telling the whole story or providing a complete information set. Today, we hope to shed some light on this and also help you to do what the theme of all three seasons of this podcast is about, make those informed evidence-based decisions. So let's dive in. Why don't we start, Josh, with you explaining why you take so long, like two or more hours to go through a client protocol with them. Like how long does it take to tell someone what to stop eating, what to eat more of, and the supplements they need? Well, really the basis of everything that I do especially when working with a client one-on-one, is education. Yes. I believe that if people have the right information, they'll make the right decisions. What does doctor mean? (laughs) (laughs) Doctor actually means to teach. Comes from the word to say her. (laughs) Threw that in because you love that nugget. Yeah, I do. And they're the original teachers. And that's what we engage in in any clinical relationship, whether it's with a doctor or massage therapist or a nutritionist or anyone who's helping you with your health. And that's what we really want to focus on today. But when I work with a client, I spend at least two hours giving them their protocol. Believe me, I've tried to whittle that down over the years to make better use of the time, but there really is no better use of the time. We have to help people understand, firstly, what health is. And with every client, I go through something called the slope of health. Because, you know, in school, no one really taught us what health was, did they? I'm thinking health class, and I remember there was something involving a condom and a banana. And Vaseline, which doesn't work well with a condom. Uh, Right. That was a a lesson everyone learns. Yeah. Well, hopefully not by experience, but in health (laughs) class. Anyway, let's move along. Yeah. And you have phys ed. You learn about, at least in Canada, the Canada Food Guide. So there's like little hints and clues as to what health is. 
But there's never really this holistic discussion that health happens from the ground up, just like a tree or a plant needs to have good soil to uh, grow and be strong. So through that process, we start with the slope of health. And then I explain how they got to where they are today using a timeline. Then we actually talk about their specific condition. Mm -hmm. I can't even tell you how many clients come to me and they say, oh, I was diagnosed with this. Right. And they have no idea what it is. Right. So we spend a little bit of time going through that. And then I spend time going through the actual protocol, right? We always have four areas of intervention, a foundational diet, therapeutic foods, lifestyle interventions, and supplements. And we spend time going through each one of those. And I draw pictures and give visuals and I show them exactly how and why it's going to work in their body. And this is how you ensure that your clients have full informed consent in your practice. They know what you're recommending, why you're recommending it, how it will work in the body, potentially what they could expect to experience, and ensure that they're comfortable with it and on board. And if they're not, or something is too far for them to go, or they're just not, doesn't feel right for them, you can offer those alternatives or explain what might happen if they don't proceed. Exactly. And from the beginning of my practice, I always wanted to operate from the highest standard of healthcare. Right. And the highest standard of healthcare is making sure your client is as involved as possible in the process and understands every step along the way. Right. So how does a client or patient understanding and them actively opting in, believing they've made the correct choice for their health. So how does that impact the outcome for them? Great question, Meg. Thanks. And we can look at many studies that have been done on the placebo effect. Of course, with every clinical study, there's a control group and then there's the intervention group. So the control group basically pretends like they're getting the intervention. So it might be a situation where if someone is taking a real medication or a real supplement and someone else is taking a sugar medication or a sugar supplement or a capsule of water, if someone's taking a capsule of EFA, something like that. So the control should have effectively no impact on their health from a biological or biochemical standpoint. That's the control. Exactly. But what we find in the research is that the placebo group often actually has some sort of reaction or change in their health. And that's an interesting piece. It's often the piece that's kind of ignored because you're looking at what happens with the intervention group. But the placebo group has a lot of great information in terms of how that works with the human psyche. So believing something will work, even if it's completely inert, can result in a positive outcome. And I think we know, just as a sidestep, how powerful the mind is. And I said this to you the other morning. I was I had this weird dream and a basketball landed on my head in my dream. And this was completely a dream, something totally in my mind, but it jarred me awake and I felt pain on my head. Like this is a ridiculous example, but it's an example of how powerful the mind is in affecting how we can feel on a physical level, but also how our bodies can physiologically respond. Absolutely. And there's this study that I love that was out of Harvard in 2007. And what they did was they took 84 hotel attendants and they told half that the activity that they engaged in every day, just with their job, satisfied the Surgeon General's recommendations for active lifestyle and exercise. 
The other half, the control group, the placebo group, if you want to call it that, even though they're not really receiving a placebo, were told nothing. And what they found, and this is a quote from the results of the study, is as a result, compared with the control group, they showed a decrease in weight, blood pressure, body fat, waist-to-hip ratio, and body mass index. These results support the hypothesis that exercise affects health in part or in whole via the placebo effect. That's wild. So when people know why they're doing what they're doing, it actually enhances that positive effect. So if I told you that watching Netflix every night was going to take the place of your workout, it would do the job. <laughs> Maybe I don't have <laughs> I'm enough not authority. I'm sure that would work that way. But just an interesting side note, they have actually ran like Olympic athletes yeah. through their full event in their head. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the physiological things that they would experience in the actual event happen right. at the same time. Like where they visualize. I feel like I read this about someone on a luge. I don't know why I think <laughs> that, but like they envision the entire track and what they would do and how they move their body to get through the whole track. And that can result in a better outcome in the actual race. Absolutely. Yeah. You can even see skiers sometimes like before they get out of the gates. Yeah. They're actually running the whole course through their head, being, through their movement. Being the athlete that I am, like before I leave the house, why are you? <laughs> laughing before I leave the house in the morning. I visualize my bike ride to work that's about seven minutes long. <laughs> totally kidding. Now, the flip side of the yeah. placebo effect is called the nocebo effect. And these are negative outcomes induced by beliefs. So we can even believe something is going to be not so good for us and actually experience negative symptoms. And there was a paper put out by Hassan and others in 2012 talking about the nocebo effect, doing a bit of a review, and they found that nocebo effect can account for nausea, stomach pains, itching, bloating, depression, sleep problems, loss of appetite, poor sexual function, and severe hypotension. So these are objective observations that people are experiencing from taking no drug, doing no intervention, just being told that something's maybe going to work or not work. So let's bring this into culinary nutrition. If we had, I'm going to create a study right now, okay? <laughs> We've got our placebo and our control group. And I tell one group that eating a jar of sauerkraut is going to create a whole bunch of gas and bloating. Mm -hmm. And I don't tell the other group anything. What you're saying is the group that was warned about potential negative effects will be more likely to be more of a toot storm than the group that just goes ahead and eating it without knowing that there could be any kind of digestive upset from it. Hypothetically, that's exactly correct. It's like the car effect. You know, when you start looking for a car, someone says, hey, check out all the green cars or the white cars, and then you all of a sudden see that specific car everywhere? That happened with our car. It I felt did. like I had never seen it before, and then I did all this research, bought it, and now I feel like we see this car everywhere. So just uh, one added note here on the nocebo effect, there has been a little controversy with medical treatments, whether doctors should disclose the full negative side effect list, because they know that there is somewhat of a nocebo effect. Which brings us to a question about informed consent. So informed consent, which I alluded to, I didn't even allude, I did say it earlier when it came to Josh and his protocols, explaining everything to his clients. Uh, informed consent is, well, let me tell you officially what it means. Informed consent is the process in which a healthcare provider educates a patient or client about the risks, benefits, and alternatives of a given procedure intervention. It's technically the law. 
in the United States that doctors must give full informed consent to their patients before putting them on a medication or going through any type of medical intervention. I think it's the law throughout the world, wherever they practice conventional medicine. I'd like to think so. Yeah. So this policy really should extend to all healthcare practitioners and practices. It doesn't always. And so it can also become the put the onus on the client or patient to ask. And where here in Canada, some appointments can end up being very short just because of the nature of our system, it becomes really important that the patient or client puts it on the practitioner they're working with to explain it all. And there's basically four, I'd say four and a half required elements of the informed consent process. Do you want to just go through those, Josh? Absolutely. The first is they have to explain the nature of the procedure. Second is the risks and benefits of the procedure. Third, reasonable alternatives. And of course, within a conventional medicine framework, they're talking about other conventional medicine alternatives rather than all the natural. Number four, risks and benefits of alternatives. And five, assessment of the person's understanding of the first four items that I just mentioned. Now, what's interesting, Meg, is that, you know, sometimes when my clients bring in a report from um, a procedure they had, there's actually a discussion by the doctor or whoever analyzed the results that they actually went through all these steps. Oh, like, interesting. There's, there's, yeah, there's copy that says, I discussed this with the client. I told them the risks and benefits. This is the procedure I recommend. Let me know how you want to proceed. Right. And what's interesting about this is that, so let's pretend I'm the client or patient. You're the functional nutrition practitioner or doctor right now. And you're telling me what you're going to be doing or what your recommendation is, also the alternatives. And me as a patient or client, now empowered with informed consent, can say confidently, this is the procedure I want to go ahead with, or this is the medication that I feel is right for me, or this is the supplement protocol I want to take, or this is the yoga practice that is going to be right for my body. And now taking into the placebo effect and the nocebo effect, that alone can positively impact the outcome versus you giving me informed consent on an intervention and me not feeling confident with it or comfortable with it and being more focused and more concerned about all the side effects could actually result in a more negative outcome, which is why as a client or patient, whoever you might be in this situation, it's really important that you have a full understanding of what's about to be done or happen or where you're at or whatever your circumstance is. And for lack of a better phrase, buy into it. Be like, yes, this is the right thing for me. This makes sense. This feels like it's going to be successful. So that alone, in addition to whatever the intervention might be, that state in your mind can also add to the positive outcome. For sure. And I think also in the discussion, often with medical procedures, We have to disclose or communicate to our practitioner, our doctor, whoever that is, how much of each side we want to know about. Right. That's part of the informed consent. That's interesting too. Yeah, because if we want to, or if we can, we still want to try to avoid the nocebo effect. Of course. And sometimes you say, hey, I'm really wanting to do this procedure. I think it's the best decision. I appreciate the risks and benefits of it. Let's not discuss too much what the negative side effects can be. Right. I want to share a story. Please do. So our regular listeners, and if you're not a regular listener, become one. 
I shared my story way back in season one about my diagnosis with an autoimmune disease. And in my process of getting to that diagnosis, I had gone through a lot of different doctors and specialists and natural healthcare practitioners. And nearing the end, just before I was diagnosed, I was prescribed a certain medication by a specialist. So it wasn't a doctor that I had a relationship with. It was probably one of those very quick appointments, whatever it was. So they prescribed a medication that was recommended for or indicated for the symptoms I was expressing. And I thought, okay, great. I worked for a company. I had a drug plan, so I didn't have to pay for it. And I went to the pharmacy and passed my subs- my prescription, my subscription, my prescription along and, you know, went for a walk for 20 minutes, came back to pick it up. And the pharmacist said to me, why are you getting this medication? And I explained to him what my symptoms were and what I've been going through. And he said, well, I have to advise you that this medication can cause gastric bleeding. So if you're already having intestinal bleeding, you may not know whether the medication is working if it's also causing gastric bleeding. And I made the decision not to take it based on that. My doctor wasn't pleased, I should say. Like, you you don't necessarily want to, and we're not advocating to defy your primary healthcare practitioner. But after having that informed consent, I didn't feel comfortable with it. And I wasn't in a life or death situation at that point. It's interesting to me that I remember that anecdote so clearly because it also felt to me like almost my last option at that point. And that was when I started exploring natural healing modalities. Again, not for everybody. You have to do what's right for you and you're, you know, you're best off getting second opinions when needed and following the guidance of your healthcare practitioner because their sole purpose is to keep you well. But I'm telling you this story because you never quite know where that informed consent will come from. And I didn't have the know-how to even think to look up these things at that point in my life. That's really interesting, Megan. I actually have a couple clients who are pharmacists mm-hmm. and we've had pretty lengthy discussions as to how people often don't know what that medication is going to do and what the side effects are going to be. And I have a good friend who's a medical doctor, a functional medicine doctor. We, we had lunch recently and he was saying that in his appointments, because we're socialized healthcare here in Canada and some of it's covered by OHIP, is that he gets about five minutes with a client talking about the medical stuff. Right. And then he has to say to the client, okay, your covered appointment is now over. We're going to now move into the functional medicine part of it, which is billable. Right. And then they spend like 40 minutes or an hour, you know, really talking about it. So it's a combination of, you know, how the system's set up and how much time they have. And because of that, I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. That's just how it is. And it works great for emergency medicine and stabilization. But as clients, as patients, we need to be well-equipped to handle and to know how to manage this healthcare system. Right. And to maximize the time that we do get with our primary care practitioners so that we are getting the best care. We're focusing on the information that we really need or that's really important to us as individuals. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick pause here so you can meet an incredibly inspiring culinary nutrition expert. Jenny Bradley has been thriving with her cancer diagnosis since 2017. With three previous academic degrees, Jenny is skilled at researching all she can on the topics she's passionate about. And still, she gained tremendous value from her experience in our program. Here is Jenny to share more. Hi, my name is Jenny Bradley, and I'm a 2020 graduate of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. 
I'm from Kansas, in the middle of the United States, and the Academy of Culinary Nutrition has given me lots of opportunities to connect with interesting people from all around the world as we each go on our nutrition journeys. Like many others, my own health crisis became my catalyst to dive deeper into the wide world of nutrition and learn how to actually craft meals that taste good while nourishing the body. After all, if I can understand the good a food can do for the body, but I don't know how to cook or use it well, what good does my knowledge do if I can't act on it? Megan, the ACN team, and my fellow CNE buddies have been so supportive as I take what I've learned as a certified culinary nutrition expert, along with my experience from my own cancer journey to grow Shrink the Mutant School, where I equip other cancer patients to confidently advocate for themselves and thrive with more peace and less overwhelm. One of the things that I love about Megan is that she really is your cheerleader. She does want you to succeed, and she really believes you can make it happen. Through her digital teachings, the support of the ACN team and coaches, and the effort you put into your learning, you can make your culinary nutrition expert dreams come true too. Jenny is one of the many graduates using what she learned in the program to support her personal health and to confidently share it with others for her own business. Having had the opportunity to interact directly with Jenny, I can attest to her passion, her drive, and brilliant sense of humor. For links to everything Jenny is currently working on, please head over to our blog at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and just click on this episode. If you're curious about how the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program could kickstart your health journey or ignite a business in the health and wellness field, then head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to learn more. Now, back to today's episode. Another interesting element around health is social pressure. And when we were starting out, there weren't like health celebrities or nutritionist celebrities. And I think it's because there wasn't really social media at the time. But now people get these massive followings through YouTube and blogs and start these like 100 banana diets. And isn't that what it is? It's like it was a diet where like you only ate bananas. Know, lots, yeah. We know the celery juice one was pretty recent, but mm. there's things and you start to see them circulate in your social circles. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, if that's working for that person who I look up to or who is the picture of health, wherever I deem the picture of health to look like we all have our own definition of that, I want that too. I'm going to do it. That looks like it's the right answer. So if it's working for everybody else, it's got to work for me. You have an interesting insight. You shared it on one podcast about the diet thing and like 10% of people will get like amazing results. What is that about? Yeah, well, I think with any intervention, whether it's dietary, whether it's celery juice or medication, is like if you look at the bell curve, there's some people who are going to have extraordinary results, whether it's placebo or not, as we discussed today. Most people are going to kind of fall in the middle. Eh, yeah, maybe it's helping, maybe it's not. And then there might actually be someone with some negative results, a right. nocebo effect or an actual negative result to that. So what we find is that these things do work for some people, not for others, but we see them over and over again. And one of the golden rules of advertising, and you know this, Megan, because you're in advertising, is repetition. Yeah. You're more apt to buy something or buy into something when you see it multiple times. So we know now, like with our social media, you like look something up once and then you're served an ad on Facebook, you're served an ad on Instagram, you're served an ad like in Google or on someone's website and just follows you everywhere. Yeah. And you're a lot more prone to buy it. Advertisers have known this for years. So it's that repetition that gets it into your nervous system. 
And pharmaceutical companies have known this for years, right? Like in the U.S., they are allowed to do direct-to-consumer advertising. In the Canada, it's been banned. Yeah. There was recently this interview that was really popular, and people in the U.K. were seeing the U.S. aired edition. I don't know the details of it. But what I saw afterwards was the responses. There was like some, it was on some blog, but responses from U.K., sort of bloggers or TV critics talking about the pharmaceutical advertising and the prevalence of it. Mm. Because when you're not accustomed to it, it can be pretty shocking. Like between every TV break, there's another one and another one. Yeah. And in the US, they're used to it. It's their quote unquote normal. Right. Whereas here, even when we travel to the US and we see these things on TV, we're like, what is going on? First of all, drugs are supposed to be prescribed by doctors. So why are they doing direct to consumer advertising to get people to go back to their doctor and say, hey, I heard this drug can increase my sex drive and improve my joints and make me feel happy. Can you prescribe me that? It's always grandparents pushing a child on a swing. <laughs> That's what I picture with like With big blood. smiles and slow-mo. Josh, it's a big day here on the Today's Day podcast. What is going to happen? I have a study. Megan has a study. So I'm currently reading Jay Shetty's book, and there's some really interesting studies mentioned in it. And one of them is the Solomon Ash. A-S-C-H, conformity studies. It was a series of studies he did in the 1950s that was looking at how social pressure influenced people's decisions. One study involved what was called a line judgment. So on the left side, there was a line of a certain length, and on the right side, there was three lines of three different lengths. One matched the one on the left, so you can picture that. What happened was that there were 18 trials in total. All of the participants except one were planted by the study. There was one true participant. Everyone else was, quote, in on it. So there were 18 trials in total, and all those people who were in on it gave the wrong answer on 12 of the trials. What Ash wanted to see was if the real participant would conform to the majority view or how often that would happen. And what he found was that over the 12 critical trials where the wrong answer was given by the majority, 75% of participants conformed at least once and only 25% never conformed. And what was interesting is that without that group, without the group around you giving the wrong answer, the participant only gave the incorrect answer 1% of the time. So it went from 1% to up to 75% with that added social pressure. And it can be that you don't want the conflict, you don't want to stand out, or you maybe even simply think, well, this doesn't seem right to me, but If everyone else agrees, I must be the person who's wrong. And it can really challenge your own best judgment in a situation. And ultimately, the individual often will know the right thing for them. And we have to be mindful of that and aware of that. Do you think this ever happens in the nutrition world? (laughs) We see this come into play all the time in the health world. You mentioned this with pharmaceutical advertising in the U.S. that repeats itself and telling the potential patient they should be requesting certain medications. In the nutrition world, as we talked about, public opinion or seeing someone that you look up to doing something that works can also affect your decision to do it and potentially even affect the outcome you might have. It could be enough to give you a positive outcome. And, you know, if it's not doing harm, maybe that's, great and enough. If I had a penny for every time a client said to me, oh, my friend is doing this diet and they feel so good, or my mother is doing this diet and feels so great, I'd probably have 50 cents. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's interesting, I find, is that a lot of assumptions are made about my diet. 
And so someone will email me a question, say, well, I don't eat blah, 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 like you, or I don't do this, blah, 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 like you. And they hold whatever their assumption is of my diet to this very high standard. Mm. And so I typically don't disagree. Like whatever they think is the right way to go and that's what they're striving for and that's what they think is right for them. I mean, I don't work with clients. I don't know what their diet should be. But it's just interesting how we strive for something because we think it might work for someone else, even if it's not even correct. And that can create a positive outcome or at least create positive desires or desires for change. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an interesting thing that can happen mentally, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Have you ever heard of this? Well, I have, but I don't remember. Yeah, probably for me. Probably. (laughs) And it's just fascinating because what happens is when you learn about a topic, you begin to think, there's actually probably a lot I don't know about this topic, I need to learn more. And then there's an increase in your learning and you see it and are exposed to it more. And you think you know a lot more than you actually know at some point. And this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's when people think they know way more than they do about a topic because they've been exposed to it in a certain way. And I see this happening a lot in the health world right? We've talked about celery juice or the vegan diet or any number of health trends that have come and gone. And we're not saying that none of this works. It very well could work. A lot of it has research behind it. So I don't want you to think that we're saying this because we're like, this is all fake and it's all placebo. That's not the case. Yeah. And, you know, Megan and I are still trying to make sense of everything too. Science is always changing. The world's always changing. There are definitely some fundamentals that never change. But when it comes to the health world, everything's always growing and changing. And it's a big challenge for us sometimes to actually unpack and figure out what's going on with certain health topics. We're constantly trying to check our own confirmation bias and be like, am I reading this or agreeing with this because it's already in alignment with what I think? Because it is hard to allow your mind to be changed. If you believe something and see it everywhere and you see it working for everyone else and you're reading about it all the time and always reading the same view on it, it can be incredibly challenging when you realize, wait a second, this actually isn't working for me. Is something wrong with me? And that's usually when people start diving into the other side of things and be like, oh, wait a second. Maybe this isn't the right thing for me just because it's right for Josh, might not be right for Megan. And, you know, I'm on the Meganitarian diet. Josh is on the Joshitarian diet. I'm on the Megan protocols of supplements, the Megan plan for exercise, which involves watching Netflix and believing that it's helping me get fit. Just kidding. I do exercise. (laughs) But it's just important to remember that there's always the individual and it can be really hard to allow our minds to change if we are so inundated with the same message Mm. over and over again. Here's a fundamental truth, Megan. Ooh, drop it. Drop it like it's hot. There's 7 billion people on this planet. Yes. And not everyone needs the same thing. We've now basically, I don't want to say we've discredited our entire podcast by saying that we may not be right on anything we've said, blah, 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 that it could affect different people in different ways. You have to do your own research that all, you know, all the things we've said could be creating a stress or a doubt in people's minds. And what we want you to do and what we always want our students, our clients, our readers, anyone who follows our work to do is to dig in and decide for yourself what is right, what makes the most sense for you as the individual, as the one of seven billion, what makes the most sense for your personal optimal health now and into the future. So this is important. What are some of the considerations people have to take into account when they're deciding on what to do for their health? 
Mm-hmm. I think the first place to start is ground zero. What's your, the individual's state of health? Where are you right now? Like, look at your health, look at your body, look at your environment, look at how you live and assess where you feel you are on what I call the slope of health. That's a good place to start. Then you need to assess the potential risk factors for you. Right. Not for the entire population as a whole, but for you as an individual. Are you at high risk or low risk? And what would be the benefits of whatever intervention you're considering? We talk about the N of one. Is that what it's called? Yeah, N of one, yeah. And we looked into the the research heavily on different potential interventions with having a baby. When I was having my son, well, we didn't know he was a son at the time. We thought he was, we were having a daughter, but that's a story for another day. But we looked at all the potential interventions, what the risk factors were. And, you know, there are risk factors with any intervention. What I was forgetting was where I fit into it, mm. where my own personal health and risk factors fit into it. And I didn't have any negative side effects from what ended up being an emergency delivery. The human and the person and the person's risk factors are so critical to consider. That's a great point, Megan. And that speaks to a lot of what I do with my clients. You know, it's not one or the other, natural or conventional. Oftentimes there's a combination. So, you know, you take two people who are have to go in for whatever surgery and one person just, you know, gets the pre-op and says, arrive on this day. And then this is when you're going to leave. This is how long you'll be in the hospital. But when I work with my clients and they have to go through the same surgery, for example, we're doing pre-surgery preparation and nutrition We're doing post-surgery nutrition as well to put them at the best possible health for their body to recover and heal from whatever they're going through. So they can mitigate any potential risk and have the most positive outcome possible from the procedure. Exactly. So where can people dig in for this information? It's not easy. It's not easy. You Google something, you probably look at the first one or two or three hits that come up and you think you've done the work. But we can't stop there. That's the beginning place. Right. And, you know, you can start to do a little research on on the Google and, <laughs> you know, check out some studies that are actually published in journals. Right. Right. Maybe learn how to read an abstract, which is usually not that complex. You actually really only have to read the last one to two lines of the abstract to get the gist of it. So how you can go about this is you do the Googling. The Google is not the doctor, Right. You don't subscribe to Dr. Google, but you do the Googling, read the articles, but don't take those articles at face value. Click on the links and then click on the links and then click on the links until you get to the source of that information, which could be that study that Josh mentioned where you can read the abstract, you can read the conclusion, and you get more and more comfortable reading these. In my own research, when I'm writing, what I often see is a message or a theme or something stated as a fact. And I'll click on the link and it goes to another person's individual blog. And then it goes to another person's individual blog. And I can't actually find the source of that information. And for me, that means it's not valid. It doesn't mean that someone's experience with it isn't valid. But for me, I don't feel confident using that as a source of information to share it with you. And there's definitely been many examples of studies that have been funded by industry. Like the biggest one that just came out in the past few years was the sugar industry back in the 70s, showing that sugar didn't cause heart disease. Right. And they funded a lot of these studies and, you know, skewed the results and 
really confused a lot of people. When you look at these studies, and you can go to PubMed to start searching around and get accustomed to how they lay them out and what information you want to look at, there will be a conflict of interest statement right there. So it could be that you see right there that the beneficial outcome of the study was funded by a company or organization that directly benefits from having a positive outcome from that study. It becomes really important that each individual starts to strengthen our own research skills and takes the time to get to the source. Ultimately, the more empowered we feel about the decisions we make for our health, the more likely we are to have that positive outcome. And we have to take into account that we're getting a full informed consent process, that we are not necessarily being influenced by social pressure, and that we're really looking at ourselves as the individual and our own unique slope of health, risk factors, cofactors, nutritional state, lifestyle, the things we're ready to change and take on, the things we're not quite ready to. And that can all be part of us making the optimal decision for ourselves and how we want to proceed. And what we all want is to be healthy, to feel well, to be happy, fulfilled, content, feel good when we wake up in the morning, have a great day, sleep well. Like those are the basics. If you made it this far in the podcast, I really hope that you've picked up some great tips that you can use right away that you could use to help manage your health team. Really, we have to remember, we are all at the center of our health picture. We don't want to be told or instructed or ordered or feared into making certain decisions from our friends, family, or medical practitioners. We want them to help educate us. And then through informed consent and information, we want to make decisions from an evidence, non-fear-based point and trust that the other people helping you are trying to help you make the best decisions for you. Thank you for joining us. We have loads of resources and links to help you start digging in on the research and discovering how to make the most informed decisions for your own health. Please head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast to get access to all of the additional information. If you love the idea of empowering yourself to be able to wade through conflicting information and discover how to make decisions that are best for you, your family, or your clients, then take a moment to check out our 14-week flagship program, the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. It is the only one of its kind. Registration is open for a limited time only and we get started soon. Learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program and be sure to join one of my monthly program information sessions to learn more. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is, as we clearly saw today. As I say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you again next time.